Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel, starting in the middle of chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12. Hear now the word of our God. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says, thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed upon Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men." And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. 
And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in the, one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is the, this is the word of our God. The prophet Jeremiah once said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus spoke the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years after Samuel's day, concerning the coming of the new covenant, the day when all God's people would know the Lord. The implication being that in Jeremiah's day, they didn't know the Lord. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely, Jeremiah had said, 
Even the prophets and priests were corrupt and self-seeking. Now, the problems of Jeremiah's day were not new. More than 500 years before, the same problems were found in the priestly house of Eli. Here at the beginning of the book of Samuel, we're seeing the beginning themes of kingdom and temple, which will run throughout the book of Samuel and into the book, the book of Kings. Long before Solomon asked God to hear the prayers made in that place, God was drawing his people toward himself at the tabernacle. The faithful would come to the house of the Lord to, to pray, to bring their sacrifices, to make their vows before the Lord. So there's a sense in which there were some who knew the Lord at some level. In Leviticus, God had showed Israel a picture of how truth, goodness, and beauty could be restored at the tabernacle. Now, in 1 Samuel, we see two opposed visions at the beginning of, of what had happened in Israel. In a sense, these two families give us the snapshot. into the, So, in the book of Judges, you get it at, a, at the large-scale level. Here we get it at the small scale with these two families. Eli's sons... Priests, the young men of the priests, priestly family, turning to perversity and lust, turning to idolatry, turning away from the Lord. And Hannah, with the eyes of faith, seeing that the sanctuary is indeed the place where wombs are renewed. And when Samuel was born, Hannah waited until the child was weaned, and then she brought Samuel to the priest, to Eli, at the tabernacle. Now, the narrative in chapters 2 and 3 here offers us a, a single picture through these two families. In, in the first verses 12 to 26 in chapter 2, we have this contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli. And there's a sense in which Eli is the, key, is the figure connecting them. Because not only he raises his own sons, they don't turn out so well, he also raises Samuel. And so it's... It's, it's, a, it's an interesting contrast between these three men, two, his two sons and Samuel, uh, going opposite directions. And then in the middle of the narrative, Eli will bless Elkanah and Hannah, and he will curse his own two sons. And then at the end of chapter 2, the Lord curses Eli's sons, and then in chapter 3, the Lord calls Samuel. So there's a way in which... Eli himself is prefiguring um, what God will... I mean, Eli sees ahead of time what's happening, and yet Eli's eyes are growing dim. He doesn't see. There's, it's one of those things that he sees, but he doesn't see. Verses 12 to 26 of chapter 2 contrast the sons of Eli and Samuel. It opens by explaining how Eli's worthless sons desecrate the sacrifices and then turns to focus on Eli's blessing of Samuel's family and then he curses his own sons before concluding with a comment that Samuel grows in stature and favor with God and man. Uh, you may recognize the phrase. Luke will say that Jesus grew in stature and favor with God and man. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They are sons of Belial. It's the same phrase used in Judges 19 to refer to the worthless fellows who sought to rape the, the Levite from Ephraim and who did rape and murder his concubine. It's also the phrase used in 1 Samuel 1.16 when Hannah insists, I am not a worthless woman. Literally, I am not a daughter of Belial. And this, this word Belial will later become applied to the devil 
uh, but at that time the phrase means a son of worthlessness or a daughter of worthlessness. So Eli's sons are sons of worthlessness. Now, and they did not know the Lord. Now, this is the phrase used in Judges 2 to, uh, when it refers to the generation that did not remember the Lord's redemptive works. So to know the Lord includes both both the, you might say, the intellectual content of remembering his works, but also then the moral aspect of doing his will. Because it's, it's sort of like, you know, do you remember your, your, your anniversary? Well, okay, I'm sure all of you can re- recite the date just fine. But if on that day you forget entirely, that, you know, <laughs> did you remember it? Well, no. Knowing the Lord and loving the Lord are not two different things. When you understand who he is and what he has done, then you desire to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. So knowing the Lord doesn't stop with just having the right ideas about God. Knowing the Lord includes hearing his word and putting it into practice. But for many in the era of the judges, they did not remember his mighty deeds. They did not know him. They did not love him. They walked in their own selfish ways. As the refrain in the book of Judges puts it, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In verses 13 to 16, we hear about the sin of Eli's sons. And it describes their their practice in those days. And uh, just when it says that the priest's servant would do this, it's probably referring to... uh, to Hophni and Phineas, the word servant there in verse in, uh, in, in verse thirteen is the same word translated young man throughout the rest of the passage. Uh, so when it says the priest, it's the priest's young man, the young man of the priest. Who are the young men of the priest? Hophni and Phineas, um, and just this is this is actually the key word in our passage. So let me just point, if you, have, if you have the text open, it's translated different ways, and I understand why, but because in, in Hebrew, the word young man can refer to somebody between the age of four and 30. And in English, we use different words to refer to a four-year-old than we would to a 30-year-old. It's, rare, I mean, it's hard to think of any word in English. <laughs> I suppose child in some broad sense of the term, but you wouldn't usually call a 30-year-old a child. Um, but... So in chapter 2, verse 11, Samuel is called a na'ar. There it's translated boy. Then in verse 13, and then again in verse 15, the sons of Eli are called na'ar, translated servant. In verse 17, the sin of the na'ar, the young men, was very great before the Lord. It's the same word translated servant. It's the, it's, so it's the sin of the young men. So, so that who are the young men? Hophni and Phinehas. Who's the servant? Hophni and Phinehas, because it's the same word. Verse 18, Samuel ministers before the Lord as a na'ar in a linen ephod. Verse 21, and again verse 26, this na'ar, this young man, Samuel, grows in the presence of the Lord. It will also be used of Samuel again in chapter 3, verses 1 and 9. So nine times in our passage this word is used, and it gets translated three different ways. And again, I understand why, because it's trying to explain to you at the beginning of the story, Samuel's a boy. By the end of the story, he's a young man. But in Hebrew, you use the same word to describe all of these. <laughs> and so, uh, I, I, I don't know how you would translate this in English. 
otherwise I'm fine with what the ESV did. I'm just telling you what what the ES what the Hebrew text is showing is trying to do is show this contrast between Hophni and Phineas, these Naar, these young men, and Samuel, this young man. Sure, they're much older than he is. They're probably fifteen, twenty years older than he is. But they put the text puts them both in the same category and says there's these Naar, Hophni and Phineas, who are rebellion against God. And then there's Samuel, who is the one who will hear the word of the Lord. So, all this to say that it's the young men of the priests who are demanding the meat. Now, we had heard when we went through Leviticus about the proper procedure, how God commanded that the priests were to receive a portion from the sacrifice. But God was to receive the first portion, the fat, the liver, and the kidneys. Hophni and Phinehas, however, insist that the priests should receive the first portion. They put themselves above God. And they indulge their own appetites rather than serving the Lord and his people. They take what they want rather than what God said they should have. Now, as we go through Samuel, oftentimes the various sins that get referred to will be reported without commentary. He can't help himself here. Verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, you would think it would move straight to, okay, so what's Eli going to do about this? No. Instead, it moves to the contrast with Hannah and Samuel. Because Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, a na'ar, a young man. Now, Hannah lives around 12 miles away in Ramah, and she comes to Shiloh once a year to see her son. Imagine, mothers, your little boy growing up to be a young man, and you only see him once a year. That's That's hard. And yet, this is, she had vowed him to the Lord. And so his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And every time she comes, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And they returned home, and indeed the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. What a contrast between the worthless sons and the faithful Hannah. We don't yet know exactly how Samuel will turn out. He is ministering before the Lord. Uh, That's a good sign. But as we'll discover in chapter 3, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. There's, There's a way in which Samuel is still, he's still growing. And Eli's blessing here for Elkanah and Hannah is in contrast to the worthless sons, the sons of Beliar. Truly, Hannah is not the worthless woman, the daughter of Beliar, that Eli had taken her for back in chapter 1. But also think about the picture here. Hannah comes year by year to faithfully partake of the peace offering in obedience to God and his commands. Hophni and Phinehas are not content with the portion that the Lord gave them, but they seek to satisfy themselves with the honor that was due to God alone. And so Eli blesses Elkanah and Hannah. And once again, 
the blessing of Eli the priest is not an empty blessing. We'll have reason to, uh, the Lord himself will say that Eli does not handle things well with his sons. But that doesn't mean that his priestly blessing is devoid of meaning. He is a priest, and the Lord uses his word. His, His word, his blessing, is full of life and promise. And so Hannah conceives and bears three more sons and two daughters. And the young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. We keep getting these one-liners about Samuel. He worshipped the Lord there. The boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. The young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. The story's evil, but it's sort of whetting your appetite for what's this child going to be? And then Eli... We then hear about Eli's dealing with his sons. People often focus on Eli's failure as a father, and certainly the fact that his sons turned out so poorly does not reflect well upon him. You often hear people say that if he had been a good father, either they wouldn't have turned out this way, or at least he would have removed them from the priesthood. Is it always true that good fathers produce good sons? Ezekiel 18 says that a righteous man can have a wicked son and a wicked man can have a righteous son. I mean, indeed, if, if sons are doomed by their fathers, because if good fathers always have good sons and bad fathers always have bad sons, then, well, that's just... But Scripture often shows us that as as Ezekiel puts it, when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. If he has a wicked father, still, his repentance will bring him life. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. But should... What about the, the you also I've, I've read commentators who say that Eli should have removed his sons from the priesthood. How do you remove a priest? You know, we're, we're used to you know, oh well if, if you got a sinful pastor get you know, get him out of there. But how do you remove a priest? I mean, we just went through Leviticus. What's the method? Well, the priests are commanded not to marry unclean women. They are commanded not to engage in idolatrous practices. What happens if they do? Well, an idolater should be put to death. But what about a priest who violates the rules of the sanctuary? There are no provisions for removal. Rather, the error should be corrected, guilt offerings should be offered, and the offending priest brought into conformity to the word of God. But what if he won't? Uh, sort of, there is at, at the at, eventually, if there, the, his contumacy might wind up him leading to doing something that deserves death. But Old Testament priesthood is not so easy to get out of. It's a hereditary thing where these guys are priests. In fact, Eli's comment to his sons is is actually accurate. If a man sins against the Lord, if he sins against man, okay, we're the priests. We can do something about that. If he sins against God, there's no one to mediate. So what's the problem with Eli? Well, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all all that his sons were doing to all Israel. 
and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. We sometimes forget that there were women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. In Exodus 38.8, we hear that the, the basins of bronze for, for washing was, was made from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, we don't know all that they did, but they served at the entrance to the tabernacle. You know, in chapter 1, we heard of a faithful woman, Hannah, who came to the tabernacle praying for a child, vowing to dedicate him to the Lord. There's a connection made between the womb and the holy place. And we see in Eli's sons the unholy connection between adultery and idolatry, because their worship practices also lead them to unfaithful sexual practices. And Eli says to his sons, why do you do such things? He says, there's no good report that I hear. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So he starts where he should. He rebukes them and brings the, char the charges against them and says that if they continue in their path, they will die. But he doesn't have authority to remove them from office. Now, he probably could have adjusted their duties and probably should have done that. But they have sinned against the Lord and the Lord's people. And they have nothing to stand between them and the wrath of God. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They do not know the Lord, and they will not listen to God's word. And so they will die. I mean, this is just... I mean, what God is, is showing us, that if you do not know the Lord, and if you will not hear his voice, then you will die. That is the path that you're on. Now the contrast is that the young man, Samuel, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Again, the contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli could not be more clear. He is called a Na'ar, just like them, but he is growing in stature and favor both with God and man, unlike Eli's sons. And Luke will speak of Jesus as the one like Samuel. So what was the problem with Eli? He, as he didn't have authority to remove them from the priesthood, but as high priest, he did have the authority to require conformity to the law of God. As high priest, he could have altered their duties so they didn't have access to the offerings, or to the women, for that matter. And so since Eli will not do what he is charged with doing as high priest and father, the Lord sent a prophet. And if you note, the prophet speaks of what the problem is. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Eli has honored his sons over God by allowing them to continue their wickedness. And the way the man of God puts it, it sounds like Eli himself is eating the meat that they stole from God. And this helps us see the problem. Eli rebuked them, but, and he warned them of the curse of God that would come upon them, but as high priest, he is responsible for their conduct. And as high priest, he is complicit in their sin. And so God says to Eli, you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts. 
And the Lord declares in reply, Far be it from me, for, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. It's, this is a, a word play in, in Hebrew. The idea of honor is the, is the kavod, is the idea of you know, glory, weightiness. If you give weight to God in His Word, He will give weight to you. But if you despise God, you will become a lightweight. Yeah, so basically, those who despise me shall be lightened. Sort of not made heavy, but made light. No weight. We, we, even, we still use this sort of language in English where we talk about somebody whose, whose words carry weight. And here it's, no. The one who despises me is a lightweight. The one who despises me shall be lightly esteemed, has no honor, has no glory. Indeed, um, <laughs> it's going to be this. This is going to be the name of the last of Eli's house, Ichabod, Ichabod, no glory. What happens to the house of Eli at the end of the story, which we'll get to in a shortly in a couple of weeks? At the end of the story, Eli's house will become lightweights, no glory. Ichabod. Eli's failure was that he preferred his sons to his God. He enjoyed being high priest. I recently heard of a uh, at the graduation of a police academy. I I read the sort of the the charge to the new police officers. Enjoy your new authority. And I was sort of like, please don't, please don't. We don't need those in authority enjoying their authority. We need those in authority to humble themselves and use their authority to love and serve those under their care. God's judgment was that the, his verdict was that the, the very thing Eli most loved would be removed from him. His sons would not remain long in the priesthood The day would come when the house of Eli would be removed from the priesthood entirely and God would establish a faithful priest. This story will come to its completion at the beginning of 1 Kings in chapter 2 when Solomon removed Abiathar, the last priest of the house of Eli, and the house of Zadok will be established as the high priestly family. Then we'll see that story unfold throughout the pages of the book of Samuel as the house of Eli continues to wither. And this is a warning, well, it's a warning to parents, it's a warning to all of us. If there's something you care about more than you care about honoring God, I mean, if you care about your children more than you do about honoring God, then your house will end in dishonor. Because what is the thing that matters most to us? Is it the honor and glory of God? Is it His name? Or is it our own? Now, the coming of the man of God at the end of chapter 2, we're told, was very unusual. That the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And at the same time, Eli's eyes are growing dim. He doesn't see clearly. It's a metaphor for his spiritual problem. And at the same time that Eli's eyes are growing dim, yes, the, the ark of God is in this temple... And the lamp of God has not yet gone out. 
Remember this, because Eli's eyesight is linked together with the word of the Lord and the presence of the ark and the tabernacle. As Eli's eyes grow blind, Israel will follow its priest. But the lamp hasn't yet gone out. This may be a reference to the lamp in the holy place that the priests were to keep lit. But it also suggests that with the death of Eli and his sons and the exile of the ark, the lamp also will go out bit of foreshadowing. But before all this happens, while, while there's still a glimmer of light left in the tabernacle, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Just think about that for a moment. The high priest is supposed to go in there once a year. And Samuel just like sleeps there? Is this? I mean, there are strange things going on in in the book of in the book of Samuel. I mean, when you try to think about what sort of like is is the tabernacle set up properly, or is everything going? I mean, what's going on? Well, things are not set up properly. You should have guessed that already by now from the fact that Eli's sons are behaving the way they are. Things are not the way they should be. One of the reasons why I say when you're when you're reading the books of Moses and you're reading through the law, don't read them as ah, oh, this is how Israel did things for all those generations. No, this was how they were supposed to do things. Did they? No. Here's Samuel sleeping in the, the temple. What is what is what is meant by the temple? I mean, is it even the, the I mean the tent of the tabernacle was hundreds of years old now. Was it even functioning? Had it worn out? And when it wore out? I mean, what were they supposed to do when it wore out? Had God ever said what to do when it wore out? What do you do with all that fabric when it, after enough years of, of, of the elements finally wears, wears out? Are you supposed to make another one? Did God say that? No. What, do you, what are you supposed to do? Just <laughs> So... Samuel is sleeping in the room with the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, I mean, let's just take it at face value, what it says. And so it looks like Eli, Eli recognizes this child has been sent to him for whatever purpose God has. Eli seems, to, I mean, he's got, he's, had, he's got enough spiritual vision to figure out something's going on here that God's doing, and this is great, but it's not about my sons, and okay, what's going on, Lord? And so, before God brings judgment on his people, before the ark is exiled, before all that happens, he first calls a prophet. At the first call, Eli and Samuel both assumed there was simply a mistake. Yeah, I thought I heard you. No, no, you didn't hear me. At the second call, we're told that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And that could get us a little bit nervous, because that phrase was what was said about Eli's sons. Eli's sons did not know the Lord. What's the difference? Eli's sons <laughs> don't even want to hear. Samuel is humble and willing. To know the Lord in Samuel is to be a prophet. To hear the word of the Lord and do it and speak it. At the third call, Eli realizes what is going on. 
This is why I do have something of a sympathetic note in my uh, attitude towards Eli. Eli is judged for his refusal to discipline his sons. His house bears the blame and is brought under judgment because he did not do what God commanded him to do. But although nearly blind, Eli still sees well enough to point Samuel in the way of righteousness. And so he tells Samuel, if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And when the Lord comes to Samuel, the, the message that he gives to this Na'ar, this young man, somewhere between the ages of four and thirty, probably now in the middle of that range rather than the lower end anymore. But he says to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. There is no atonement for the wickedness of Eli's house. There is no sacrifice for the willful, deliberate sin of the priest. And so Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. <sighs> do I, how, do I, how do I tell my spiritual father this? And Eli calls him and, and says, uh, You can tell, Eli knows. It was about me, wasn't it? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all he told you. Eli knows about me. And so Eli basically says, may, God's, may the curse that God told you about me be done to you if you don't tell me what it is. Remember, Eli is the priest. His words are powerful. Samuel respects that. He didn't want to say, but he hid nothing from him because he recognizes, I don't want this to happen to me, but so I will tell you. And Eli's response is to submit to the word of the Lord. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli says, I have failed. And Eli is a complicated figure. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what to do with him in terms of he, on the one, I mean, he rears Samuel well, but his own sons he failed at. And yet, with his own sons, it was the purpose of the Lord to destroy them. And so it's sort of like there's, it's sort of, it's a very, I mean, it's one of, one of the things that I want us to do as we read the Word of God and as we read everything else in the world is adopt a hermeneutic of charity to recognize that the, don't, don't assume the worst about people. And that's why when I read Eli, I'm like, hmm. His eyes are dim. He does not see clearly. He makes lots of mistakes. But he is also the one who shows, points Samuel to the word of the Lord.
And the Lord establishes Samuel as a faithful prophet. There is at least one who knows the Lord. We started in Jeremiah 31 with the promise that God would establish a new covenant in which all God's people would know the Lord. Here in Samuel, we have one who knows the Lord. And that is the way that God is showing us that he is going to operate. Because as the book of Hebrews points out in chapter 8, that in Jesus Christ, the new covenant has been established through the one who, like Samuel, except our Lord Jesus is the one greater than Samuel, he is the faithful priest, he is the anointed king, he is the prophet whose word never falls to the ground. And because God has raised up Jesus and seated him at his right hand, you are joined to the life of his son and you are called to know the Lord. To know the Lord in Jesus is to be joined to his life. Knowing him... The men have been going through the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And knowing God is not just, I mean, sure, there's lots of information to know about God that's important to know. But knowing God is not just about knowing that information. Knowing God is about being joined to the life of His Son that we might know Him as our Heavenly Father, that we might know the Lord, that we might hear the word of the Lord and do it Because knowing God also means that with Samuel, that the Lord was with him. This is, how is it that Samuel knew the Lord? Sure, Eli taught him stuff. He taught his own sons, and his sons didn't know the Lord. He teaches Samuel. Why does Samuel know the Lord and Eli's sons don't? Because the Lord was with him. You see, this is ultimately what makes the difference. Because when the Lord is with you, then you know him. And that's where he calls us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves, to turn away from all those other paths, all those other things that we once thought were so important, all those desires, you know, for Eli would have been, hey Eli, being high priest isn't all it's cracked up to be. Knowing God, that's what it's all, that's what, where it's at. Hophni and Phineas don't get it. They think, hey, we get what, we get to do whatever we want. We got all the power here. Knowing God means the Lord is with you. Lord, have mercy on us that we might know you, that you might be with us, as you have promised to Abraham, as you have promised to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as you have given us your, your faithful promises in him, that you might be with us, as you sent him who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that he might be that atoning sacrifice that does remove sin, that does take our iniquity and carry them as far as the east is from the west. Lord, may your mercy continue to to change us and renew us that we might no longer wander, but rather that we might draw near to you, finding in you our rock, our refuge, and our fortress. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy upon our children, 
that as they grow in age, that they might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, that you might be with them, that you might draw them to yourself, that you might open their eyes to see your glory, that you might open their ears to hear your word, that they might know you. Help us all, Lord, to know you, to hear your voice and to humble ourselves before you, that we might taste and see your great goodness and glory and mercy. And Lord, have mercy upon all those who are afflicted and bowed down. Have mercy upon Wade as he waits for a, a, a bed in Indianapolis to, to open up, that you would provide for him the wisdom from the, for the doctors to figure out what to do with his hip and with his leg. Lord, help him and bring healing to his body and comfort to his heart that by your spirit you would renew and refresh him and help Eileen in the midst of all this. And Lord, have mercy upon Dave as he uh, endures these shingles that you would bring healing to his body and comfort to his heart as he, as he seeks your face. And Lord, have mercy upon each one as we go through the various trials and tribulations and upon all of all the afflictions that, that, that you send that may we hear you and draw near to you with hearts full of faith, with confidence that you will continue the work that you have begun in us, bringing it to completion the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen.